This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. First up, we have Britt Long, who's going to update us on the newest sepsis guidelines. Now, there are a few things to be aware of since our 2019 episode on sepsis and septic shock with Sarah Gray live from the EM Cases course. So take it away, Britt. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign just released their 2021 updates in December. I love managing sepsis, so I couldn't wait to take a look. For this quick hits episode, I'm going to break down some of the key updates. Now, there's no way I can cover all the 93 different recommendations, but I have picked some of the major ones that affect us in the ED. First, we need to talk a bit about screening tools for sepsis. One of the more recent tools is QSOFA. This includes a GCS of less than 15, respiratory rate of 22 or greater, and a systolic blood pressure of 100 or less. If two of these are present, we need to think about sepsis and infection. This seems user-friendly, something that we can easily use at the bedside, but the evidence behind its use is controversial. It has poor sensitivity, and the guidelines actually recommend against using this as a single screening tool. However, they do suggest obtaining a lactate level in those with suspected sepsis, but using this only as an adjunctive test. Lactate alone should not be used to rule in or rule out sepsis. My favorite screening tool for septic shock is NEWS, National Early Warning Score, which has better accuracy than QSOFA at identifying septic shock. And the beauty is that it can be done easily at triage before you even see the patient. Just go to MDCalc to look at the specifics of the score. It's really just the patient's vital signs and whether they require supplemental oxygen or not. This is something we should probably be implementing at triage to pick up those occult septic shock patients early. Next is our initial resuscitation, and this is where the guidelines get interesting. The guidelines suggest using at least 30 cc's per kilogram of IV crystalloids within the first three hours of resuscitation for those with septic shock or hypoperfusion due to sepsis. The key word here is suggest. This is actually a downgrade from the prior guidelines where they recommend at least 30 cc's per kilogram. Now, this fluid amount is not going to work for every patient. The guidelines state there is insufficient evidence for using a restrictive or a liberal fluid strategy in the first 24 hours in those with sepsis and septic shock with hypoperfusion and volume depletion. They also state fluid resuscitation should only be provided to those patients with signs of hypoperfusion. We do have to closely watch for both over and under resuscitation. The guidelines suggest using dynamic measures over physical exam, or static parameters. Dynamic parameters include response to passive leg raise or a fluid bolus or using stroke volume variation, pulse pressure variation, or an echo. Other markers like heart rate, central venous pressure, and systolic blood pressure alone are poor indicators of resuscitation. So things have changed a whole lot when it comes to the volume of fluid to give in septic shock, but it's still quite controversial. I think Everyone would agree that the days of giving five or six or seven liters of crystalloid off the bat are over. One approach is to give a bolus of, say, 500 mils or 1,000 mils that would cover for insensible losses from fever, from tachypnea or diarrhea or what have you. 
And then after you've given that bolus, then you check for fluid responsiveness. Now, there's all kinds of fancy ways of doing this, but the most practical way, I believe, is by just looking at the lungs and IVC on POCUS. If the IVC is plump with little respiratory variation, and if there are beelines on lung POCUS, then you don't have to give any more fluids. You can look at the heart, too, to see if it's hyperdynamic with an empty-looking LV, which would suggest the need for more fluids to fill that tank. If the IVC is not plump and the chest is clear and the heart is not hyperdynamic, then consider giving some more crystalloid based on your overall gestalt, the patient's vitals, and the urine output. Now, many experts are also recommending starting norepinephrine as early as possible for patients with a MAP less than 65, especially in those patients who have globally poor LV function on POCUS. The idea is that the main physiologic problem in septic shock is vasodilatation, and because of leaky vessels, filling that intravascular space with volume more and more and more just leads to more and more third spacing of fluids as opposed to filling a rigid vascular container that has been depleted. So counter that vasodilatation with early norepinephrine and know that you don't necessarily need to give huge, multiple, big boluses of crystalloid. The guidelines also suggest guiding resuscitation to decrease serum lactate over not using serum lactate. However, you do have to keep in mind that lactate is not a direct marker of tissue perfusion. There are many conditions that can raise serum lactate. The final point for monitoring and guiding resuscitation is using other adjunctive measures like capillary refill. Capillary refill has been validated in several studies as an adjunct marker, and it's reproducible when you're looking for tissue perfusion. That was a bit of a detour, but let's get back to resuscitation and fluids. Prior guidelines recommended balanced fluids or normal saline for your initial resuscitation. The current guidelines still recommend using crystalloids as a first-line fluid, but they now suggest using balanced fluids like plasmolite or lactated ringers instead of normal saline, with much of this coming from the SALT-ED and SMART trials. If fluids aren't enough and the patient is in septic shock, the recommended first-line vasopressor is norepinephrine. The guidelines recommend an initial target MAP of 65 over higher MAP targets for those with septic shock on vasopressors. If we're unable to achieve the necessary MAP, the guidelines suggest adding vasopressin to norepinephrine followed by epinephrine. The patient with cardiac dysfunction and hypoperfusion is extremely challenging. Guidelines suggest adding dobutamine to norepinephrine or using epinephrine alone. They suggest against using levosimendin if the patient has cardiac dysfunction. What about the peripheral use of vasopressors? Thankfully, we've had several great studies looking at this. Recent data suggests peripheral administration of vasopressors is associated with a faster time to achieving a MAP of over 65, and it's generally safe, especially if you're using a line distal to the antecubital fossa and for a short period, like less than six hours. Based on this evidence, the guidelines now suggest starting vasopressors peripherally rather than waiting until you have central access. Let's get to the all-important antimicrobials. We all know we're supposed to start these immediately, ideally within one hour of recognizing possible septic shock or in those with a high likelihood of sepsis. However, if the patient has possible sepsis without shock, the guidelines suggest a short time of looking for the cause of the patient's symptoms which might be infectious or non-infectious. If you're still concerned for infection, they recommend antibiotics within three hours from when sepsis was first recognized. 
The guidelines do discuss procalcitonin, but it's not ready for prime time. They suggest against using procalcitonin to decide when to start antibiotics. What about choosing specific antibiotics? The guidelines break antibiotics down into the empiric phase, in other words, what we do in the ED, and then the directed or the targeted phase. There has been an increase in multidrug-resistant bacteria. In the ED, we need to provide at least one effective agent against a suspected organism based on the infection, local prevalence of resistant organisms, patient risk factors, and then disease severity. If the patient is at high risk for multidrug-resistant organisms, guidelines suggest using two antimicrobials with gram-negative coverage. If they're at low risk, they suggest using a single agent for gram-negative coverage. For those with a high risk of MRSA, like hemodialysis, a recent admission, a vascular device, or a skin infection, then provide coverage for MRSA. If the patient is at low risk, the guidelines suggest against using routine MRSA coverage. Source control is always important, and the guidelines recommend rapidly identifying a specific diagnosis of infection that requires emergent source control. If a vascular device like a PIC line is a suspected source, the guidelines recommend removal once you've obtained other access. Now to airway and ventilation. The guidelines have added high flow nasal cannula and ECMO. In the patient with sepsis-induced hypoxemic respiratory failure, the guidelines suggest using high flow nasal cannula over non-invasive ventilation. However, they don't make a recommendation on the use of non-invasive ventilation compared to intubation. If the patient is intubated, they recommend using a low tidal volume strategy and they recommend using an upper limit plateau pressure goal of 30 centimeters of water. For the patient with ARDS from sepsis, they suggest using higher PEEP over lower PEEP. Finally, if conventional mechanical ventilation fails, the guidelines suggest using venovenous ECMO if it's available. Let's finish with the adjunctive therapies. I haven't mentioned steroids yet. If the patient has septic shock and ongoing requirements for vasopressors, the guidelines suggest using IV steroids. This is a change from the prior guidelines where they suggested against using IV hydrocortisone to treat patients with septic shock if adequate fluid resuscitation and vasopressors were able to restore hemodynamic stability. The guidelines recommend using a restrictive transfusion strategy, and if serum glucose is 180 mg per deciliter or 10 millimoles per liter or over, they recommend starting insulin. Finally, let's get to vitamin C. High-quality studies demonstrate no improvement in patient-centered outcomes. The guidelines suggest against using vitamin C. Okay, that was a lot of content there. I highly recommend taking a quick look at these guidelines. There's even a great section on long-term outcomes and goals of care. Thanks for listening, and hopefully this summarizes what you need for your next shift. All right, just a quick review there. Cap refill is a great adjunct marker for tissue perfusion. After you give norepinephrine to target a MAP of 65, if you're not doing well there, the second line is vasopressin, and then the third line is epinephrine. Thankfully, the guidelines have backed off from insisting giving antibiotics within one hour, which caused a storm when they first suggested that. That was probably causing more harm than good, and they've nicely settled on three hours, which is much more reasonable. If the patient's at high risk of multi-drug resistance, remember to use two antibiotics, and for those at high risk of MRSA, make sure to cover them for it. They added high flow to replace NIPPV and ECMO, and when it comes to steroids, remember they are good for all those patients who are resistant to vasopressors. All right, next up we have Nur Khatib, who's 
come back to give us yet another amazing rural medicine case. It was a beautiful winter evening at a rural site in the Northwest Territories. The green northern lights were dancing above the hospital as I start my overnight shift. My first patient was a 61-year-old female here for 10-on-10 headache, dental pain, eye pain, nausea, vomiting, and just generally feeling unwell. She was wearing sunglasses, doubled over, and holding the right side of her face. Her past medical history consists of fibromyalgia, and she's on amitriptyline, and she has a history of sickle cell anemia. She states it all started when she had a toothache about two weeks ago and was unable to see a dentist. There is a dentist that visits this part of the North every six to eight months, but he retired last year and the community has been without one. Although her toothache and right facial swelling was two weeks ago, her right face pain, headache, and right eye pain started last night. She has been having a lot of trouble sleeping from her toothache and has been taking Advil PM regularly and increased the dose of her amitriptyline as her pain became unbearable. I examine her mouth and there's clearly tooth tenderness on the right first molar with submandibular lymphadenopathy. A tooth infection, of course. This fits the story. But wait a minute, she came in with a headache, eye pain, and she's wearing sunglasses. That's not your typical dental infection patient. Before walking away to write my pain medication orders, I decided to do a neuro exam on this patient. There it was. She took off our sunglasses and was in immediate pain from the bright hospital fluorescence. Her right eye had conjunctival injection, a fixed mid-dilated pupil. The tonopen machine and slit lamp were not available. The right globe was slightly firmer than the left. I did not expect to diagnose acute angle closure glaucoma on this patient, but let's get into it. Acute angle closure glaucoma is an eye emergency. It's characterized by raised intraocular pressure due to impaired aqueous humor flow from the posterior chamber of the eye. When the posterior eye pressure increases, it pushes the iris forward, causing the angle between the iris cornea to close, hence the name acute angle closure glaucoma. This disease is associated with systemic symptoms like nausea, vomiting, headache, and even abdominal pain, and so it's at high risk of being incorrectly diagnosed. Many patients present with frontal headache, nausea, vomiting, photophobia, colored halos around lights, and blurred vision. It is precipitated by a dilated pupil, thus the classic story of a patient leaving a dark movie theater and getting sudden eye pain. Let's talk about some risk factors. There are certain medications, any medication that has a potential to precipitate an attack, are ones that can dilate the pupil. So these include adrenergic agents, anticholinergic agents, sulfa-based drugs, tricyclic antidepressants, and anti-Parkinsonian drugs. Other risk factors are family history, being of Asian descent, female gender, hyperopic eyes, or eyes with shallow anterior chambers. Now, how do you treat this? You need to treat this ASAP. The increased intraocular pressure can lead to optic nerve damage and vision loss. An ophthalmologist needs to be consulted immediately, and the following agents should be started. We've got drugs like pilocarpine, which is a myotic, timolol, beta blockers, apriclonidine drops, which is an alpha-adrenergic agonist, prednisone drops, acetazolamide, which is given systemically, and mannitol, or glycerol which are hyperosmotic agents. Now, let's go back to my case. What just happened? How did we go from dental pain to acute angle closure glaucoma? 
I delved into the literature for this, and there have been several studies looking at links between periodontitis and glaucoma. There's even a study published in Nature in 2020 stating an association between both was statistically significant. The mechanism is not clear, but overall inflammation and proximity of the organs were cited. Remember, association does not equal causation. I can't hang my hat on this one. But if we delve into our own case further, we realize the patient is of African-American ethnicity, has family history of glaucoma, and just increased her amitriptyline and started taking Advil PM, which has diphenhydramine, for her sleep because of all her tooth pain. The patient had underlying reason to have glaucoma. What tipped her to acute angle closure glaucoma was likely the increase in the anticholinergic medications. This was also in the midst of an almost 24 hours of darkness time in the north. Her pain would worsen as soon as she walked into the bright indoors. This makes a lot more sense now. Of course, we do not have an ophthalmologist in the small town that I'm in. We did not even have a tonopen or slit lamp. I did find some Timolol, gave her mannitol IV. The only other medication available was some acetazolamide, which we could have gotten from a pharmacy that was a two-hour drive away. But remember, our patient has a history of sickle cell anemia, so I avoided acetazolamide in this case. The contraindications to acetazolamide are sulfa allergies, sickle cell anemia, renal failure, and Addison's disease. So keep that in mind. Now, just with those medications, within three hours, the patient felt a little less pain in her eye, and the Medigavac flight was able to take her to our nearest ophthalmologist a few hours away. The patient got laser iridotomy in the big city, and her vision returned. As for her tooth pain, she killed two birds with one stone, and while on her trip for her eye pain, went to see a dentist, and all was sorted out. And there you have it, friends, another rural case where there's not a lot of resources available, but honing in on that clinical exam helped this patient out. That was absolutely fantastic. It's been a long time since we've talked about acute angle closure glaucoma. So again, acute angle closure glaucoma is characterized by at least two of the following symptoms. One, acute onset ocular pain with nausea and vomiting. Two, intermittent blurring of vision with halos seen around light, and that's due to the corneal edema. Three, photophobia. And four, visual loss, along with at least three of the following signs. An intraocular pressure of more than 21. Usually it's between 40 and 80. Conjunctival injection. Corneal epithelial edema causing haziness fixed and mid-dilated pupil, and a shallow anterior chamber. Risk factors include elderly patients who are farsighted, so hyperopic, and triggers include transition from light to dark environment, just like in this case, that causes the mydriasis, as well as many medications, anticholinergics, antimuscarinics, antidepressants, antipsychotics, antihistaminic, and sympathomimetics. Most of them, they cause the problem through mydriasis. When you start to manage these patients, make sure to reassess the IOP about every 15 minutes in the early phases of treatment. And the key stuff to give, Timolol, 0.25 to 5%, one drop. That decreases the aqueous humor production. Just make sure there's no contraindications like bradycardia. A topical cholinergic like pilocarpine, one to two drops every 15 minutes for two doses. That causes meiosis. 
It decreases the angle of the anterior chamber and it increases drainage. Next is acetazolamide, which is usually given 500 milligrams IV. You can give it PO as well. And you can add mannitol 1.25 to 2 grams per kilogram IV of the 20% solution. And that exerts an osmotic diuresis if a response with the other drugs does not occur. And in terms of when we miss acute angle closure glaucoma, it's usually in elderly patients or those with disabilities and dementia, psychiatric patients, where thorough history and physical may be really challenging, and also in patients who present primarily with a headache rather than eye pain or abdominal pain and vomiting. Oh, and one final note, make sure to consider acute angle closure glaucoma in any patient who's had recent eye surgery. All right, we're going to switch gears now to my good friend Ruben Strayer, and he's going to give us the lowdown on the newest study on using a bougie for all first attempts at endotracheal intubation. Lots of chit-chat about the second of two studies Brian Driver and his group at Hennepin published in JAMA on bougie versus dilet. The BEAM study from 2018 randomized providers from the author's department to either a bougie or styleted endotracheal tube and found that in 757 patients, first-pass success was a stunning 98% in the bougie group and 87% in the stylet group. This result caused many bougie skeptics and the bougie indifferent to incorporate the device into their practice. But then more recently, Driver led a remarkable multi-site interdepartmental effort where his group basically repeated the BEAM study in seven emergency departments and eight ICUs. And this time, which they called the bougie study, Among 1,100 randomized patients, first-pass success was achieved in 80% of the bougie group and 83% of the stylet group, an insignificant difference and a demonstration that the bougie was far less effective in the hands of the operators in these 15 departments than the Hennepin docs. So what does this mean? Well, let's take a step back and do a quick bougie refresher. The bougie is a long, thin, flexible tube that is specially designed to enable a laryngoscope operator to cannulate the vocal cords. An endotracheal tube is not designed to be easy to intubate with. It's designed to be an effective conduit of air from the ventilator tubing to the trachea. The bougie is far thinner and far more flexible than a styleted endotracheal tube, and this has very important implications. The most obvious advantage is that it is simply easier to navigate a small tube into a small hole than a large tube into a small hole. Furthermore, because an endotracheal tube is about the same size as the space in between the vocal cords, as you advance a styleted tube on the glottis, you will often lose your view of the target at the moment when you are about to cannulate the cords. The bougie is supple and moldable, which gives you a lot more flexibility in how you shape it, and this feature has been harnessed more effectively by second-generation bougies, which we'll discuss in a moment. You are much less likely to accidentally place the bougie into the esophagus because you can generally see very clearly the bougie pass between the cords, unlike an endotracheal tube, which again blocks your view so you could easily advance through the wrong aperture. But the bougie is also self-confirming in two ways. The subtle way is that you can feel the tracheal rings if you are paying attention and going slow, but the more reliable way is that if you gently advance all the way, and you must do this gently, the bougie will hold up at the carina if you are in the right place. So you can confirm success before you ventilate for entitled CO2. And this is an underrecognized bougie benefit because insufflating the stomach with air is very dangerous. 
The bottom line is that if you are equally skilled with a bougie in a stylated endotracheal tube, you are going to be successful more often with bougie. If you are skilled with a bougie, you can intubate views that cannot be done with a stylet, including epiglottis only grade three views, because of the bougie's deflected coup de tip. This is a very good reason to get good at using the bougie, which you will do only if you use it routinely. Especially in the age of video, you are not going to be skillful with the bougie if you reserve it for poor views, because poor views are uncommon with video. And the difference between being skillful with the bougie and not is a first pass success rate of 98% versus 80%. Now I'm being a little tongue in cheek there. That's not a claim that can be made based on the two driver studies, but it's probably pretty close. We know, and I know, that Hennepin has a really robust expertly orchestrated airway management skills program that teaches and reinforces a variety of best practices, including routine use of the bougie. And Brian's first JAMA study, the BEAM study, is a celebration of that effort to the tune of a 98% first pass success rate. But the bougie is not a self-driving car. You cannot just pick up a bougie that you rarely use and be skillful with it, especially when your palms are sweaty trying to intubate a critically ill patient. So if you want to be as good as the Hennepin docs, well, you might have to train a Hennepin, but using a bougie for every intubation is a good start. This advice is confounded by hyperangulated geometry blades, which were excluded from both of these studies. Hyperangulated blades provide a superior view of the glottis by creeping around the tongue instead of having to displace the tongue, but that view comes at a price, which is that it is far, far more difficult to deliver the tube when using a hyperangulated blade than a standard geometry Macintosh-style blade. Because, especially if you try to maximize your view, which you should not do with a hyperangulated blade, but that is your instinct, and so if you yield to that instinct and you get your best view with a hyperangulated blade, your camera will be looking up at beautiful shots of the cords, except that you're looking up from the other side of that steeply curved blade and the trachea points down. So you have to make your tube go around the tongue, pointing up, and then change direction once it gets to the cords and point down which is very unfavorable physics. So we have special equipment and strategies to overcome these unfavorable physics like hyperangulated stylets and stop, pop, and drop. And these accommodations mostly work most of the time, and lots of folks are very skilled at using hyperangulated blades to create effect. The bougie, when used with hyperangulated blades, does not overcome the problem of tube delivery and can cause a lot of trouble if it's not molded properly. In order to work with a hyperangulated blade, the bougie has to be molded in roughly the same shape as the blade so that it can make the same turn around the tongue. But you are still left with the problem of the second turn once you get to the cords, the turn down into the trachea. I find that I can do this more effectively with a bougie than a rigid hyperangulated stylet, like the GlideRite stylet, because the tip of a rigid stylet cannot accommodate that second curve, the, the dip into the trachea. It's rigid. But the bougie, if properly shaped and advanced, can arrive to the glottis and then make the bend into the trachea because the bougie is malleable. It's bendable. This is quite a bit more difficult than using the bougie with a standard geometry blade. So unless you are already very skilled with hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, use a standard geometry video blade and a bougie as your first choice. As an aside, the device that does completely overcome the problem of tube delivery is the flexible endoscope, what is often called a fiber optic bronchoscope, because you can drive the tip up to the cords and then manually change the direction of the tip to maneuver it down the trachea. And the combination of hyperangulated video laryngoscopy and flexible endoscopy is an underutilized, relatively easy, and extremely powerful two-person airway technique I call VAFI, Video Assisted Flexible Endoscopic Intubation. You can see more on that at emupdates.com slash choices. 
excellent. I do recommend emupdates.com, Ruben's site that has his hundreds of amazing algorithms. Now, back in November at the EM Cases Summit, George Kovacs, Canada's airway guru, gave a fantastic talk on everything you need to know about bougies. It's a bit of a deeper dive and a slightly different perspective, and it's available free open access on the EM Cases YouTube channel for those interested. One thing that Ruben and George agree on is that there is no role for bougies in patients with grade four views, and that's what Ruben's going to talk about next. You hear some talk about the use of a bougie in a grade four view when you see no landmarks at all, no glottis, no epiglottis, nothing. Grade four views are distinctly rare in the era of video. If you are using a contemporary video laryngoscope and you cannot find the epiglottis, the most likely explanation is that the head and neck positioning is off or your technique is off. But if you have chosen the right blade, the patient is well positioned. You've used a good midline landmark to landmark technique an optimized view using bimanual laryngoscopy and dynamic head positioning, and you still can't find the epiglottis, a bougie is not going to help you. In a grade four view, you see nothing. You have no target. So attempting to advance a bougie or a styleted tube on a grade four view is a blind intubation. This should not be done. This should not be done because it is almost certain to fail and you will know you failed after you've bagged the esophagus, which is dangerous in and of itself, and also wastes very important seconds that should be spent restoring oxygenation, ideally with a laryngeal mask if the patient is paralyzed or pulseless. If the patient is adequately oxygenated, but the best achievable view is a grade four, come out and use a different technique. Try a different blade, place a laryngeal mask and attempt intubation through that. Have another operator give it a go. Consider front of neck access. You've got options. But a bougie is not a rescue device in a grade four view. I would submit a bougie is not a rescue device at all. It is an integral part of your airway routine. <laughs> Lastly, second generation bougies are coming. These devices have a variety of cool features, but most importantly include a metal core, which allows them to be shaped much more easily than the floppy blue bougies, and they will hold their shape. So for example, if you keep landing posterior to your target with your bougie tip, come out, add a little bend to your bougie, and when you go back in, you'll be right where you need to go. Still not a self-driving car, but we're getting closer. So in summary, the two driver studies tell us that when you are good at using the bougie with a standard geometry blade, you are rarely going to encounter an airway that you cannot intubate on the first pass. If you aren't skilled at the bougie, it does not offer a significant benefit over a stylated endotracheal tube, and you may have a lower success rate. Do not think of the bougie as a rescue device. Do not pull out the bougie on special occasions when you can't get a good view. Make every day a special occasion of first pass success by making the bougie part of your routine. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade has set up an expert implementation team, ensuring that every new client gets attention from their most experienced staff from the very beginning. They're making custom training videos for all new clients so that their training materials look exactly like their schedule. The portal is very intuitive. I personally find it really easy to use. If you need some help, they offer one-on-one -on -one remote sessions so that no matter your comfort level with electronic tools, you'll walk away feeling confident that you can use the system to its full advantage. If you're interested in a three-month free trial of their standard service, just go to metricade.com slash emcases and sign up. Hi, I'm Justin Hensley, and welcome to another wilderness-themed quick hit. Today... I'm going to talk about the treatment of frostbite, which is a little strange for me because down here in Australia, we're hitting record high temperatures in the Pilbara. 
but a lot of you live in the northern hemisphere where there's cold and snow. As we all know, frostbite is the condition resulting from tissues freezing. Frostbite has been historically classified into four tiers or degrees of injury, following the same scheme as thermal burn injury, but don't worry too much about that. Those classifications are based on physical exam findings and advanced imaging that occur after rewarming. In the field or in the emergency department, you want to classify early injuries as either superficial with minimal tissue loss or deep with significant tissue loss, as visual determination of tissue viability is difficult immediately or even after a couple weeks even. And that's all I'm going to talk about the pathophysiology because this is actually about management. The biggest and most important point I want to stress is if somebody has frostbite, you need to also determine if they have hypothermia because hypothermia can kill and frostbite, while has high morbidity, will not kill anyone. So, if they have any hypothermia beyond mild, you need to treat that and get their core temperature up to at least 35 degrees Celsius. After that, you want to remove all wet or constrictive clothing. The next step is thawing the affected part. As we've all learned, you don't want to attempt to thaw an area unless the risk of refreezing is eliminated, because refreezing will cause worse tissue damage. Beyond that, if you're in an area where you can rewarm them safely, you want to do rapid rewarming because it's the core therapy. Initiate it as soon as possible. Extremities are easy because you can dunk them in a water bath at 39 degrees Celsius, and if it's a whirlpool, that's great. doesn't need any antibiotics. You want to put them in there for about 20 to 30 minutes until the extremity of the affected area is pliable and erythematous. For the face, you cannot submerge it in water for 30 minutes because that's not compatible with life. But you can apply moistened compresses that are soaked in warm water to get the same effect. Again, 39 Celsius. You don't want to burn them in addition to their frostbite. Realize that while you're doing this, it is incredibly painful, and you will need to probably provide parenteral opioids or even procedural sedation, depending on the size of the limb and how much pain they're in. After you've rewarmed it and treated their pain, you need to do some local wound care. It's going to sound weird, but topical aloe vera cream should be used on the affected area. There's been observational studies and animal models that show that it improves frostbite outcomes, and it's most likely because it reduces prostaglandin and thromboxane formation, thereby decreasing the inflammation. Any affected digits should be separated with cotton and wrapped with sterile dry gauze over that aloe vera. You want to elevate any involved extremities to decrease the edema. When it comes to blisters, removal is controversial. You can consider draining non-hemorrhagic bulla that interfere with movement, and there is an argument that says the thromboxanes and prostaglandins in the blister may prolong the inflammation, but there's no data to support that. However, if it's a hemorrhagic bulla, that means damage has gone to the deeper tissue plane where the blood vessels are, and you don't want to open that up because it increases their risk for infection. Always be aware of compartment syndrome and have a high of suspicion in frostbite that they could have compartment syndrome. Beyond local wound care, you want to do some systemic care. The first and easiest step is ibuprofen, 12 milligrams per kilogram twice a day to a 2.4 gram per day max. This, for the same reason as the aloe vera, helps because it reduces prostaglandins and thromboxanes. Beyond that, TPA is the thing that most of us fail in doing for frostbite. You don't need to do it for superficial frostbite, but in the deep tissue injuries, it reduces digit amputation rates significantly. For this TPA to work, it needs to be started within 24 hours of rewarming, and outcomes are better if initiated within 12 hours. The dosing is much lower than cardiac or stroke doses, talking 3 mg for bolus and 1 mg per hour after that. You want to give heparin with the TPA, also in a lower dose, but 
Don't give heparin by itself if you don't have any TPA because there's no evidence of any benefit. For most people listening to this, this is irrelevant, but iloprost, which is a prostacyclin, has really good data for frostbite and can be used up to 72 hours, so it even helps people beyond the limits of TPA. Doesn't have the bleeding risks, more able to be used in the field, but it's not approved for use in the USA or Canada. So, if you're in Europe or other areas where it's cold and you've got access to that drug, use it. Iloprost actually is available in Canada, but only through Health Canada's special access program. It certainly is a reasonable treatment for patients with severe frostbite that would otherwise be at risk of amputation. We'll have a link in the show notes to an example protocol from a hospital in the Yukon Territories way far north in Canada. When it comes to hyperbaric oxygen, theoretically it's beneficial, but there's no benefit shown in any randomized controlled trials because there haven't been any. So don't make hyperbaric centers your first and only transfer option for these. As with any other wound, tetanus has been demonstrated as a secondary effect of frostbite, and so you need to provide prophylaxis. No emergency medicine lecture is good without life-saving tetanus. Antibiotics, on the other hand, are controversial, and there's no data to support them, especially not emergently. They're not recommended by the WMS, and if you use topical antibiotic ointment, it may actually interfere with the aloe vera cream that we have data that shows is beneficial, so don't use it. And just thinking about it, if the skin is so cold that ice crystals are formed in your deep tissues, it's going to be so cold that bacteria are unlikely to live there as well. Certainly, two, three weeks down the road, there needs to be concern for infection, but not initially. If you're evaluating them in the emergency department, consider whatever vascular imaging you have, either magnetic resonance, computed tomography, or technetium scans. This helps predict the severity of the vascular injury, which actually goes on to prognosticate their degree of amputation. So then what's the disposition? Honestly, the simple ones that you can rewarm and they're okay, they can go home with that same ibuprofen twice a day dosing and aloe vera cream, and they'll recover fairly well. Obviously, any deep injuries are probably going to require an ICU admission because you should be treating them with TPA, and most medical wards won't take that patient. If you have a burn unit, they may be an option as well, because the outcomes are similar, but you're going to have to make some phone calls for that. So why do we need to do a better job with frostbite if it's just about saving some fingers or toes, maybe a nose? Because it's more than that. Two-thirds of patients with frostbite have prolonged sequelae from their injuries, from as mild as hypersensitivity, cold, pain, or ongoing numbness, to arthritis, bone deformities, scars, skin and nail dystrophia, and permanent disability from amputations. Sometimes people lose their entire hand or their entire foot. So let's do a better job with treating it, okay? All right, so key things to remember in the ED treatment of patients with frostbite, rapid rewarming of the effective body parts in 39 degrees Celsius water, and you can add chlorhexidine and isopropyl alcohol to that. You may or may not want to debride and aspirate the clear blisters. Speak to your surgeon about what they want. Don't touch the hemorrhagic blisters. Apply aloe vera protective ointment and porous low adherent wound dressings. Elevate the affected parts. Don't forget tetanus diphtheria immunization. Give oral ibuprofen for pain and inflammation. And if the frostbite is grade 3 or higher, give IV iloprost 2 nanograms per kilogram per minute infusion for six hours a day for five days, because that may actually prevent amputation. 
And for grade four frostbite, add Altaplase and Heparin, which are dosed quite a bit lower compared to Stroke or MI. We have a new guest to EM Cases, the creator of the Virtual Recess Room, the incredible online simulation program that we use at the last EM Cases course, and the creator of Fooey's Figures on First 10 EM. Check them out. They're great infographics. Dr. Sarah Fooey. Now, I saw one of her great infographics or Fooey's Figures that she did on the hot and altered patient. So I asked her if she could do a quick hit on it, and she kindly obliged. So here's Sarah Fui on an approach to the febrile altered patient. We can take this higher, higher. Today, I'm going to go over my approach to the hot and altered patient. I love this chief complaint because we all think infection when we see a patient with a high temperature and confusion. But really, this differential is huge and it's interesting. So it's an opportunity for us to do a little bit of zebra hunting. Let's start with a case. I've borrowed this case from my friend and colleague, Dr. Caitlin Link. A woman in her 20s comes to the eMERGE. Her partner had called EMS after she was not acting like her usual self after they'd snorted Percocets. EMS tried giving Narcan with no improvement. On arrival, her temperature is 37.9, she's tachycardic, and her blood pressure is in the 150s. Her GCS is only 7, and interestingly, she has significant hyperreflexia, she's shivering, and she has profound clonus. We're going to start with our general recess approach. We're going to bring her to a monitored setting, assess her ABCs, make an intubation plan, give oxygen if needed, start administering fluids, get an ECG, and check a blood sugar. For the hot and altered patient, we're also going to bring benzos to the bedside to have them ready in case of seizures, agitation, or for profound shivering. Now, on to the fun part. We're going to use our differential to guide our history, physical, and workup. I like to think about my differential for these patients in three categories. First, where did they come from? Is this heat stroke? A patient with heat stroke will present with hot, dry skin and altered mental status from a hot environment. And whether this is secondary to classic or exertional heat stroke, the management is the same. We need to aggressively cool the patient. Next, Ingestions. What did the patient take, either intentionally, accidentally, or as prescribed? We should think about aspirin or salicylate toxicity when a patient presents with tachypnea and a metabolic acidosis, especially if there's also a primary respiratory alkalosis. Treatment options include charcoal, urine alkalinization with bicarb, and dialysis, with careful monitoring and correction of glucose and potassium. Fever can also precipitate lithium toxicity, which then presents with neurosymptoms like confusion, agitation, and seizures. So you should consider this in any patient taking lithium. Next, we're going to talk about our syndromes and our toxidromes. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome, NMS, is typically due to antipsychotic agents, especially the first-generation agents like haloperidol. It can also occur with other dopamine antagonists like metoclopramide. I like to think about this as the slow partner in the NMS-serotonin syndrome duo. It evolves slowly, days to weeks after the medication has been started, and it presents with slow reflexes and rigidity. Treatment of neuroleptic malignant syndrome is supportive, with consideration for dantrolene and bromocryptine in severe cases. Conversely, serotonin syndrome is the fast counterpart. It develops faster, within 6 to 24 hours after a medication or a drug has been taken. And it's associated with neuromuscular hyperactivity, shivering, hyperreflexia, tremor, and clonus, with some extra GI symptoms as a bonus, vomiting and diarrhea. 
Triggers of serotonin syndrome include SSRIs, SNRIs, and a huge array of other drugs you might not think of that also increase serotonin, like cyclobenzaprine, triptans, and oxycodone. Treatment is also supportive with consideration for ciproheptidine in severe cases. On to our toxidromes. We're going to distinguish between sympathomimetic and anticholinergic toxidrome by the patient's skin and their history of preceding medication use. A patient with a sympathomimetic toxidrome is generally sweaty with a history of cocaine, ecstasy, or similar drug use. And these patients can generally be managed supportively with fluids and benzos. But remember, if you are going to treat high blood pressure in a patient with sympathomimetic toxidrome, you need to avoid beta blockers to prevent that unopposed alpha vasoconstriction. Patients with anticholinergic toxidrome are dry, with hot, red, dry skin, and urinary retention. And this can be due to a huge array of medications from antihistamines, antiparkinsonians, muscle relaxants, and TCAs. Anticholinergic toxidrome is also managed supportively, with consideration for adding charcoal and physostigmine in select cases. Alcohol withdrawal. Don't forget delirium tremens. It presents two to four days after the last drink was consumed with high temperature, high heart rate, and hallucinations, agitation, and disorientation. It is managed with supportive care, benzos, and thiamine. Last but not least, the rare but scary malignant hyperthermia. One of the triggers of MH is succinylcholine, and since we use this in the ED, this should be on our radar. If, after giving succinylcholine, the patient develops muscle rigidity, most notable in the masseter, a rise in end-tidal CO2, and eventually a high temperature, you should suspect malignant hyperthermia. Call anesthesia for help, be ready to give dantrolene, and watch for signs of hyperkalemia. On to our third and final category. The TIN category. T-I-N. For thyroid, infection, neuro. Thyroid. Consider thyroid storm in a patient with a known history of hyperthyroidism, especially if they've recently missed medications or have had a stressor like surgery or trauma. Infection. Infections of the central nervous system like an encephalitis, meningitis, brain abscess obviously can cause a high temperature and mental status changes, but so can infection anywhere in the body, secondary to delirium and sepsis. Neuro. Don't forget that hyperthermia can present in a patient with stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, and status epilepticus. Okay, that was a lot of information fast. This topic can be very daunting. Two practical tips. First, have a resource that is quick to access that you can reference on shift to help you remember the differences between these presentations. Next, to avoid anchoring, create a moment during your resuscitations where you force yourself to pause and think about what you might have missed. I like to do this when I'm entering my orders by asking myself, what do I need to order? Really what I'm asking myself is, is there anything I haven't thought of? It doesn't matter when you do it, as long as you have a cognitive forcing strategy that will allow you to avoid anchoring and broaden your differential. Back to our case. It was discovered that she also took fluoxetine, and it was the combination of fluoxetine and oxycodone that led to her serotonin syndrome, presenting with high temperature, altered mental status, hyperreflexia, and clonus. Thankfully, she improved with supportive care in the ICU. To summarize, a patient comes in with a high temperature, altered. You'll work through your typical resuscitation, and then you will think through your differential, remembering the three categories. Where did the patient come from? What did they take? And is this a TIN disease? Thyroid, infection, or neuro? You can reference a trusted resource and create a moment in your resuscitation where you pause and broaden your differential. 
Love how Dr. Fui breaks it down into the three categories. So much easier to remember by chunking. Thank you, Dr. Fui. Last but not least, our quick hits trauma go-to, the one and only Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak. He's going to present a neurotrauma case that will almost certainly get you thinking about where the lesion is and why it's easy to miss some of these devastating injuries. A 75-year-old male presents after a mechanical fall down a flight of stairs, striking his head. He was GCS 15 after the fall and had no vital sign abnormalities with EMS. His past medical history is significant only for hypertension and hyperlipidemia, for which he takes medication, but he's not on any blood thinners. In the ED, he arrives and sees buying precautions. The primary trauma survey is unremarkable and his vitals are normal with a negative FAST exam. His neurologic examination reveals weakness in the bilateral upper extremities. Specifically, his shoulder shrug was normal bilaterally, but his elbow flexors were 4 out of 5, and his wrist and elbow extensors were 3 out of 5, as were his finger flexors. His lower extremities, however, are normal in motor and sensory examination. He had normal rectal tone, and his bulbocavernosis reflex was present. As mentioned, his sensory examination was normal, including in the saddle region. His reflexes were 1 plus in the upper extremities bilaterally and normal in the lower. He underwent a CT and a CTA that revealed underlying degenerative disc disease and a small amount of canal narrowing, while the CT carotids did not demonstrate any vascular abnormalities. The remainder of his pan scan, which he underwent due to the fall down the flight of stairs, was negative. So the main finding is bilateral weakness in the distal upper extremities more than the proximal muscles without other neurologic deficits. So what's going on here in the context of trauma? Well, a hyperextension injury in a patient with underlying degenerative cervical spine disease with upper extremity weakness greater than lower extremity weakness really likely indicates central cord syndrome. There is a differential diagnosis that does include ischemia, and that could be brain or spinal cord, brachial plexus injury, though it would be a little bit unusual to be bilateral, or some traumatic peripheral neuropathy, among others. But this presentation really does fit with central cord syndrome. So let's go through a few key questions related to this incomplete spinal cord injury. First, what is central cord syndrome? Well, bear with me for what I promise is a very short anatomy discussion. Historically, it was thought that hyperextension caused anterior compression of the spinal cord by either bony spurs or a disc, and this is still likely true but it used to be thought that it resulted in hemorrhaging in the spinal cord, which has not seemed to be the case. And it was thought to ultimately disrupt the cortical spinal tracts that control the hand and upper limb, which are medially placed, and not really affecting the cortical spinal tracts of the leg, hence the central cord syndrome. But more recent studies have found that it's not that simple, as upper extremity fibers located centrally and lower extremity fibers more laterally. Rather, it's now thought that the hand and upper limb nerve fibers are just more densely contained within the lateral cortical spinal tract, which happens to be preferentially injured in these circumstances. So it's a bit of a misnomer to call it a central cord syndrome now that we understand a little bit more of the pathophysiology. Also worth noting that it really is a heterogeneous disease, despite some commonalities in the clinical presentation. And there are several distinct injury patterns and each has various treatment options, so let's start with them. The first, the most common, is a cervical hyperextension injury without any injury on CT, or rarely any injury on CT. 
and there's often pre-existing central canal stenosis. This is the prototypical patient that we think of, and the one that I presented in the case at the start. It's important to note that their neurologic findings are often greater than the mechanism. It might seem surprising how much they're neurologically impaired, and that really should also cue you to the potential of the diagnosis. The second phenotype is the patient with a cervical spinal column fracture, causing spinal cord injury, not surprisingly. And the third Finally, patients with acute cervical disc herniation, often younger patients who have higher energy traumas, like an MVC. So now that we understand the phenotypes, let's move on to what we should look for on the clinical examination. If you're going to remember two things, it's number one, upper extremity greater than lower extremity weakness, and two, often hand and arm greater than shoulder weakness. The rest of the symptoms can be pretty variable. Some sensory deficits can be present and variable below the level of the injury. Sometimes they're described as cape-like over the upper back and down the posterior upper extremities. But there may also be cases where there's no sensory deficits at all. How should these patients be imaged? Start with a CTC spine. And due to the obvious neurologic deficits, it's very reasonable to include a CT angiogram of the cerebrovasculature. An MRI will also be required, but not immediately, and really out of the scope of the ED. The findings on CT range from fractures and dislocations, especially among the young people who have a higher mechanism of trauma, to only osteophytes found, or canal stenosis or ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, particularly among the elderly. Are there any pitfalls in the diagnosis? Well, Probably the key pitfall is missing subtle weakness in the patient who has a low energy mechanism and a normal CT. So it really does require you to consider the diagnosis in the patient who's had a hyperextension mechanism, subtle weakness in the hands and arms more than the legs, and some degenerative disc disease on CT. What are the next steps in management? Well, much of this aspect falls outside of what we'll do in the ED, and it's rare for these patients to be hemodynamically compromised due to neurogenic shock. So let's not get into that. But once diagnosed, the patient should remain in C-spine precautions, and I transfer mine into a more comfortable aspen collar, since they'll either require transfer to a spine center or at least have a pretty long wait for an MRI. At some point, these patients will need full spine imaging, but that can really be left to the spine team spine center. The subsequent management is really highly dependent on the stability of the injury. In those who have no identifiable injury on CT, a conservative approach may be taken. There's often no long-term difference in neurologic outcomes in those who undergo conservative versus surgical treatment. But instead, the benefits for surgery include shorter length of stay and faster initial neurologic recovery. If surgery is performed earlier, is better. And what we mean by that is under 24 hours. This broadly applies to all incomplete spinal cord injuries as well. The prognosis is pretty variable, though in some studies, recovery of greater than 90% of the motor score occurs in most patients. Some will have near complete recovery, while others will have substantial deficits. So back to our case. Our patient had a CT scan that did not demonstrate any acute injury, but did show underlying degenerative disc disease. His clinical exam was compatible with central cord syndrome. On exam, his deficits weren't substantial, but they were definitely present. And assuming there's no ongoing cord compression on the MRI, he'll likely have a reasonable recovery. 
He's going to remain in C-spine precautions and he was put in an Aspen collar for comfort. Spine team is consulted who will arrange for an MRI. We've already imaged the rest of his spine on the PAN scan, so no further CTs are required. He'll be admitted to the ward and there's a good chance he won't need surgery. So that's central cord syndrome. Here's the quick recap. Number one, it's an incomplete spinal cord injury, meaning there's some sensory or motor function below the level of the injury, and that might only be in the saddle or sacral region, so check those. Number two, it is a clinical diagnosis with upper extremity weakness greater than lower extremity weakness. In a minority of cases, there are some bowel or bladder dysfunction present, but the examination can be subtle, so you must be focused and precise with that. Three, there are three predominant phenotypes, including the elderly patient who has a low-energy fall sustaining from a hyperextension mechanism, a high-energy trauma that causes hyperextension in a younger patient, or patients simply with some type of fracture dislocation of the C-spine. And finally, number four, CT is the test of choice in the ED, and really you should include a CT angiogram of the carotids as well. That's all for now. So nicely summarized, Dr. Petrosoniak. Well, that brings us to the big end of podcast summary. First, for sepsis, some of the new guideline suggestions are that cap refill is useful to help figure out how well the patient's perfusing their organs and to consider high-flow nasal cannula before NIPPV. It's reasonable to start norepinephrine, the first-line vasopressor, early to target a MAP of 65, and if that fails, move on to vasopressin, and if they're resistant to these, start steroids. Some pearls about acute angle closure glaucoma. They may present with headache or abdominal pain and vomiting, not necessarily eye pain. If they tell you that they're seeing halos around lights, that should trigger the consideration for glaucoma. You know, and once you've seen that classic fixed mid-dilated pupil and cloudy-looking cornea of acute angle closure glaucoma, you'll pick it up easy-peasy. Something that I sometimes forget to ask about is recent medication triggers for glaucoma, like anticholinergics and antihistamines, antipsychotics, etc., and recent eye surgery. And if you're studying for your exams, you should be able to rattle off the meds. Timolol, pilocarpine, acetazolamide, and mannitol. Next was Dr. Strayer's rant on bougies. His bottom line is that despite the new driver study suggesting that routine use of bougies on first intubation attempt might not be so great, it's really all a matter of your skill with a bougie. So get yourself skilled at using a bougie on all first pass attempts, except for those grade four views. If you're skilled at it, your first pass success will probably get better. If you don't practice with a bougie, your first pass success will probably be worse. For frostbite, get that limb in 39 degrees Celsius water. Don't touch the hemorrhagic blisters. Use aloe vera ointment, not polysporin. Consider both IV iloprost and alteplase. You should have a conversation with your surgeon about that. Flipping to the other temperature extreme, Sarah Fui nicely reviewed an approach to the hot and altered patient with three categories of diagnoses to consider. Simply put, ask yourself, where were they? What did they take? And do they have a TIN problem? That's thyroid, infection, or neuro. And finally, Petro reminded us that not all serious spine injuries in adults show up on CT, central cord syndrome being a great example. 
If your patient has hand more than arm, more than shoulder weakness, and a normal CT, think about central cord syndrome and speak to your spinal consultant. All right, a big thanks to all of you who got tickets for the EM Cases Summit last November and also for the video streaming package that we offered until mid-February. Your support is helping ensure that we continue to give you free open access podcasts for years to come, so thank you very much. There are a few choice videos from the summit that are open access on the EM Cases website for those of you who missed out, and we're excited to announce the dates for the next EM Cases Summit, and that will be February 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, 2023. So mark your calendars, because for that summit, besides having another EM Cases virtual party with the very best EM educators in the world, we just might integrate some high-fidelity simulation for a few lucky folks who can make it to Toronto in person. I'll keep you updated here and on the newsletter that you can sign up to at emcases.com. All right, until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.